The Big Light presents Hello, I'm Sean McDonald. You're listening to Blethered, and my guest is Robert McNeil. Robert played a key role in uncovering the evidence of genocide in Bosnia with the United Nations through the excavation of mass graves. He was exposed to unimaginable horrors and the depths of evil that were carried out at the time by the Serbs. You'll hear about Robert's early life in the 1950s and 60s in Glasgow and London and his first job as a mortuary assistant in Glasgow's Western Infirmary. How he ended up working on the Bosnian project and the horrors and complexities that surrounded it. And Robert explains about his work with Remembering Srebrenica Scotland, which raises awareness about the killings and their legacy. As always, there's a lot more chat in there, which I know you'll enjoy. If you do enjoy this episode, feel free to share it, because it always helps. Cheers. Robert, thanks very much for, for taking the time out of your, your busy schedule, I'm sure, to come and sit and talk to a, a dafty like me. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Um, so many things to talk about. Um, you've had a long career as an anatomical pathology technologist. That's you, right. You've worked yeah. in yeah. so many other things. But before all these things, you were a wee guy like me in Glasgow. What was life like, like for you growing up? And sort of give me an idea of what the world looked like at that time. Well, um, I was um, born and brought up in a room and kitchen in the Partick area of Glasgow um, in, I suppose, a working class, pretty poor family. Mm. My father worked in the shipyards. and um, So for me, it was, uh, it seemed to me to be a pretty normal existence, always scratching for money. My mother, she cleaned um, a nurse's home in the Western Infirmary and so on. So, uh, and in those days, this is back in the 50s, uh, people in our, uh, uh, from our background didn't go to university or anything and we were lucky, lucky if we could see through school. And um, But I had one main interest when I was at school, uh, partially because of the support I got from the teacher, and that was in... Mr. McIntosh, was that by any chance? Yeah, it was indeed. We had, <laughs> yeah, we had a, an art teacher called Mr. McIntosh, and, um, and I didn't even know who McIntosh was, but it wasn't him. Or uh, yes, no, no relation. I don't think so. And it, it may have been, I don't know, I didn't, I didn't ask him, but, uh, and he was great, and I, I always feel that that teachers can be such an inspiration mm. to, to to young people and and he was for me so uh, I grew up into my teens and he encouraged me to go or to try and apply for art school and in those days uh, you didn't really need much in the way of academic qualifications you could just show a portfolio to an art school get an interview and uh, and Mm -hmm. And you took your chances. And he encouraged me to go to London because, again, even although Glasgow Art School uh, has the most fantastic reputation, and rightly so, at that time he had something against it where he felt that uh, art school only produced art teachers mm. in Glasgow and he thought that that 
wouldn't suit me. I should be an artist, uh, in inverted commas. And so anyway, when I was 17, 18, I headed off down to London with my portfolio to try and get into art school. But my timing was pretty crap because at that time, it was by this time, it was 1966, I guess, uh, when the student protests were in full flight uh, against many things, including the war in Vietnam, mm -hmm. and there was massive protests and so on. Um, and so I, I went along to the Hornsey Art School just as students were pouring out of it because they had suspended their education um, to start, or to help start the revolution that was mm. sweeping uh, Europe, I guess, and parts of America. And, um, and so I was quite taken by that, and I joined that um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, for a while um, and then I, I, I ended up living in a commune in fact in, in Yorkshire um, and um, I had great fun there it was uh, it wasn't what you call a hippie commune but we had a political motive and mm -hmm. that we're called the the mutual aid group I seem to remember and uh, we were there to help try and help communities with uh, who had kids that had problems. Most of the kids in Yorkshire in those days either uh, went down the coal mines or joined the army. And we hoped to try and, in our naivety, pers to persuade them to um, to do something else, maybe look at culture and so on. And as I say, it was, it was a bit naive because these mm -hmm. were pretty rough and ready kids we were dealing yeah. with. And... And funnily enough, I took really quite well to them and they, with me, because of my working class background and um, and in those days, very early days, I, I started going to a gym uh, at the age of 14 uh, and did a bit of body, body building and weightlifting. So mm. I was physically quite well proportioned, if you like, and the kids seemed to relate to that as a sign of strength, mm. if you like. And so I got on very well with them. Um, and when the commune moved off, they asked me to stay on to work with the kids, which uh, I was happy to do so until uh, I got a, a letter through a circuitous route from an ex-girlfriend who had left me while I was in London, left me heartbroken, I may say, <laughs> um, to come home to Scotland. And this letter uh, indicated that she was pregnant and I was the father. And so I had to make a quick life-changing decision. How did she even know where you were? Well, that's a good point because I didn't think anyone knew where where I was. Um, but she got she got my address somehow through my parents. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and that was a really huge moral pressure on me to come yeah. home to do the right thing as it were. So. Was, she, was she far gone because I'm picturing like her <laughs> chatting her mum and dad's door and your mum yeah. saying what's up she's got a big bump and going oh nothing I just want to <laughs> I just want to see how he's getting on yeah well yeah it was a bit like that she was yeah. she was um she was this time seven months pregnant I think and her dad behind her with a shotgun over his shoulder demanding uh, uh, to know where you are exactly so uh I, I decided to hitch back up from Yorkshire mm -hmm. uh, to the west of Scotland where she lived and um, and we agreed we would try again and yeah. see if we could have a relationship for the sake of our son um, Scott and um, that followed 
uh, but that was followed by the birth of our daughter, Leslie. And uh, I thought that was me set for life, although I had one big problem and that was trying to find work. And mm -hmm. before, before we do come on to that then, because I think it's quite funny where you ended up working, sort of going full circle, <laughs> following your mum's footsteps in a way. Um, but I've got a whole load of questions, right? So okay. first of all, how do you get, and this is just a pure curiosity one, because so I'm going to London for work on Thursday. All right. I'm getting the quarter past four to Gatwick and I'll be I'll be in the city by 6pm. How did you get down back then? Because it's not as if you can just nip to, it would have been Renfrew Airport at that point, wouldn't it? It wasn't even Glasgow Airport. Well, it was, flights were, were unheard of mm -hmm. for, for those sort of, well, certainly for, for, for my budget. Uh, and I went down in the overnight train uh, to London, the cheapest ticket possible and mm. arrived there with my portfolio I, I had um, my best mate came with me and um, uh, and so we we were homeless basically uh, but we found somewhere to stay we actually stayed in a derelict building for the first few days wow. till we got ourselves sorted and uh, I think we were young and um, there was lots of people living rough in London mm. uh, it seemed to be part of the romance of it all to some extent uh, looking back on it now it was pretty weird um so it, 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 it you know and then we we found jobs down there for a while working in a bottle factory um and that, that helped with us financing renting a flat yeah how did it feel being in the city of london because when i sometimes and i'm out myself as a weirdo here but on i would search on youtube like i do it with glasgow as well but london in the 60s and it seems to me to be this colourful, everything's happening. You know, it's a, I still think people will be shouting at their cell, or they'll be shouting in response to me here saying I'm talking rubbish, but I think London's the capital city of the world. I think it always has been. Yeah. And I imagine it's a stark contrast from what would have been a very industrial, run down in parts of Glasgow, mm -hmm. where the buildings are covered in smoke and soot. How, how was, did you feel as if, I've arrived in a totally different world when you got there. Definitely, um, it, it, you know, London is is a great city. It's also a very cruel city if mm. you're uh, if you're homeless and alone in particular. But uh, you have to understand that at that time, um, London was a very colourful place. People were painting murals and walls mm. and buildings and so on, um, and there was this amazing atmosphere uh, that the young people were coming together from all walks of life you know it wasn't mm -hmm. just students i mean there were miners for example had come down for uh, weekends to join in the protests and so mm -hmm. on and um and I, I kind of or my mate and i gravitated to a, a group of people from different parts of the world and together we took over three or four storied house where we all had a room in it and that in itself became a bit of a, a, a commune and a magnet for parties and so on. So many folk from Glasgow saw this place as their weekend retreat mm. and so there was always people sleeping on floors and um, and stealing their food, etc. <laughs> so, um, but... Do you know one thing that's just kind of occurred to me or just struck me that if you were to ask me to make a projection on how I think the UK would turn out based on the youth of the 60s and the sort of way in which they conduct themselves, I would have said it is going to be an absolute utopia because look at how 
conscious these people are of social justice you were involved yourself in the counterculture yeah. i've got a few questions about that personally related to you what happens what happens between how have we become such a right-wing hellhole when these people <laughs> do you know what i mean this yeah. was the generation coming forward do you think people um make a wee bit of money and go oh wait a minute actually i'm all right and now that i'm all right i don't need to really aspire for the improvement for the collective because i'm all right jack do you yeah. think there's an element of that or am i just being a, a, a jaded cynic at my age it's an interesting question sean and certainly at that time we were convinced that the world was going to change mm. for everyone's benefit um eventually uh and it, it, it was it was a utopian belief that we felt was possible you know and it wasn't just politics it was the the policies of music as well you know mm. we had people like bob dylan uh, say the times they had a change and you know, all those uh, fantastic uh, folk singers that were around at mm -hmm. the time adding fuel to the or encouragement if you like to, to those people who firmly believed that things would change but then it became it started to become a bit sinister um, you know, I can t give you one brief anecdote that uh, I, I attended along with my friends the the big march in Grosvenor Square in London uh, to the American Embassy, and uh, it, it was huge, uh, one of the biggest demonstrations ever, I think. And um, and somehow or other, I don't know how it came about, but we ended up in uh, taking over the London School of Economics, and uh, and possibly because of my um, my accent, etc., and my build, uh, I was put on the door. <laughs> Uh, and I was so proud because I had a, a red armband in my arm. <laughs> and my job was to stop photographers coming into the, the media photographers coming into the building because mm -hmm. a lot of students had been hurt in Grosvenor Square and uh, uh, by the police. And, um, uh, and so medical students who were part of the protest were looking after them. And they had been warned that, um, that if they were found to be among these anarchists, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera, um, that they would get chucked out of medical school. And this followed a kind of trend where students were under threat for their careers. And mm. so I think gradually, and certainly people that I knew who originally came out to change the world found that their personal circumstances for their futures was under threat. And so gradually they would start to return quietly to their college or university mm -hmm. courses and um and that's really why i was left kind of in the lurch because uh i, I wasn't i wasn't enrolled so yeah uh, and of course i mentioned the the impending birth etc so i think that there there was a, a a great sense that everything would change and it hasn't and sometimes my wife and i talk about this uh, and um the the fact that that where are all the students nowadays? Why aren't they out protesting about this, that, and mm -hmm. the other? And but I kind of understand why, because there is an element of self-preservation mm -hmm. among people. I think. I think with the the rampant acceleration of consumerism as well these days, there's far more to keep us distracted. Yeah. Um, yeah. And of which I'm part of that. I'm not saying as if like I'm immune to that. I sometimes switch off and um my awareness or sensitivities to things are dulled because I'm watching something on TV. It's, you know, mm -hmm. it's kind of the system that we're in, mm -hmm. um, which is frustrating. 
On a lighter note, I do have a question which I think a lot of people will share. And this is very predictable when somebody says they grew up in Partick in the 50s. But Billy Connolly, was he ever around and because he also grew up in Partick in the yes. 50s? Did you know him? Yeah. I didn't know him, no, but um, there's always a connection, yeah. obviously. <clears throat> when you're talking to people in Partick and uh, my father worked with his father in the, yeah. in the shipyards occasionally and they sometimes drank in the same pub uh, mm -hmm. in Partick, although it was only occasionally because the interesting thing about that period of time in the 50s, um, uh, and for me a, a real lesson to be learned about life, and that was the level of sectarianism that was rampant mm -hmm. then, you know, Protestants and Catholics. Uh, there was quite a lot of violence went on. My father was um, a staunch diehard Rangers supporter. Um, Can we cut this interview? I'm, I'm absolutely joking. I'm, I'm very much joking for anybody who doesn't realise my sense of humour. Sorry, on you go. No, okay. <laughs> no, I, re I can appreciate it. Um, and, uh, and he would take me out to an orange walk, for example, when mm -hmm. I was really young. Uh, and... and uh, at first, I used to think it was fantastic. It so was did so I. Colourful. I, yeah, when I was a week, when I didn't know what it was, I'd be, yeah. like, I'd be clapping and all that. And you know, exactly. Great. Yeah, yeah. But uh, as I grew older, I could see. I think it was the the expressions on the faces of the marchers mm -hmm. that was so serious, and there was quite a lot of aggression going on. Um, and I remember, for example, there were young men in black suits at the end of a walk who would suddenly disappear up a close in a tenement. Um, and what they were doing was uh, knocking on the doors of people who were shouting from their windows, shouting mm. abuse at them. Mm. And, uh, and so there was that. But the other thing, uh, again, back to the, the Billy Connolly uh, thing, was that our next-door neighbour, <coughs> excuse me, uh, they were... Roman Catholics and it just so happened that the boy in that family was my best friend mm -hmm. at the time uh, although we went to different schools obviously um, and I remember uh, becoming very wary of of sectarian sectarianism and indeed religion when uh, one year I don't know how old I was but I was pretty young um, the father of the boy next door gave me a present a Christmas present wrapped up in Christmas paper um, and I was thrilled by it and uh, when I opened it on Christmas Day uh, my father who um, was quite happy to have Christmas Day off because it meant that he could drink quite a lot mm -hmm. um, he asked me what it was and there was a wee inscription on it from the next door neighbour or something like that and he saw that and chucked the book in the fire and I always remember watching it burning and the title of it was called Matthew Redcarn's Treasure. And it was just a daft story about a boy finding treasure, you know, in a children's book. And, um, and I was determined from that point mm. to track down that book one day and read it to find what was in it that was so terrible that my father had to throw it in the fire. <laughs> you know, and, um, but that put me off 
uh, right off religion mm-hmm. and certainly any form of bigotry. And so the Billy Connolly connection was that in Partick, and I'm sure in many other parts of uh, of Glasgow, uh, still to this day, I, I would guess, there are Catholic pubs and there are Protestant pubs and you don't cross into one or other. Mm. And when I, when, I, when I moved back into the West End in Glasgow, it just so happened the pub that I frequented and um, Billy Connolly's dad frequented mm-hmm. and occasionally Billy Connolly would come in and have a beer with his mates and so on. Um, was a traditional Catholic bar um, that had changed hands probably a couple of times mm-hmm. since the 50s. Uh, and so I'd go down there <clears throat> uh, and occasionally meet my dad there who, you know, had swallowed his pride just so that we could have a pint together in a Catholic pub, as he <laughs> called it. And it was no more Catholic than than you know yeah. anything. So uh, so that was the, the only connection. I'm really gutted the... about that story with the fire in the book so was that was really sad and i finally I, I think i was in my 20s when i found the book in a second-hand bookshop and read it and, and it was a lovely wee story you know? do you ever keep in touch with the neighbors or do you drift no, apart they're, 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 no 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 god knows where that's yeah, a real man. shame yeah yeah for the month of december in conjunction with our partners in crime at the sunday post The Big Light proudly presents Unspeakable Scotland. A series of true-life crimes told in conversation with Janice Forsyth by some of Scotland's finest storytellers. So they walk for 12 hours across the ice. Denise Miner. 12 hours. hours. And the ice gets thinner the closer they get to the shore. It kept cracking, right? So the thinner it gets, the more it cracks into like big plates. Appeared at his bedside. Her flesh was was pale and her body was wrapped in a winding sheet. Mm-hmm. And according to, to, to what he said... Douglas um, Skelton. She said to him in the dream, John, we shall never be married. My time in this world will be very short. But Mark, you will die an awful death. Episode 1, The Buck Ruxton Murders. As told by Val McDermott. He's cutting up bodies in the bathroom by night. Uh, and by day, he's seeing patients and dropping his kids oh. off at school, dropping his kids off with friends, um, scrubbing floors. Unspeakable Scotland from the Big Light, Scotland's podcast network. Available from Monday, the 7th of December, wherever you get your podcasts. Just about you in general, because you're a very, clearly a very curious person, fascinated by the details of how something comes to be. Mm-hmm. Do you think you're a rebellious spirit? Because you're obviously a big believer in, in justice in general. Mm-hmm. How would you define yourself in that way? I think, <clears throat> I would like to think, uh, Sean, that I will challenge injustice anywhere I see it. You know, And I'm sure it all goes like in many other people, uh, it all stems from your childhood. Apart from anything else, my my father, um, I, I would say he was what you might call an alcoholic, mm. a, a weekend alcoholic, where uh, he would 
blow his pay from a Friday night to a Sunday. Um, and that would result in some sometimes pretty serious domestic violence. And um, uh, I can remember many times when my mum would drag me out um, uh, out the house at late in the early hours of the morning and taking it to my grands and so on. So I grew up with, uh, and I think actually that's, thinking back, uh, that might be why I took up weightlifting when mm. I was young, yeah. um, so I could stand up to mm. th this because I would, as a wee boy, try to intervene in this violence. And um, uh, and so I, I guess I grew up absolutely despising any form of bullying mm -hmm. and violence and, um, and and all kinds of other injustices that, that go on. I mean, I've, I've tempered quite a lot. And uh, I suppose too, the time that I had as a teenager, uh, and down living in London with with people who opened my eyes uh, in a lot of ways, politically and um, and to music that I had never heard before mm -hmm. and and just fell in love with. If as we go on and as people will hear, and I think what we will go on to talk about will back up my sort of like what I've surmised from what I know and what I've now heard is that while. Horrible. I mean, that's a, first of all, as well, would you say that sort of picture of violence is that a snapshot? You know, somebody working hard, drinking things away, not talking about his feelings. I mean, the 50s is a far cry for 2020 in the way yeah. in which we all express ourselves. Um, it seems as if, while horrendous, it has gone on to serve the world in a way. Does that make sense? Because through your experiences yeah. and the way that that's molded you, as I say, what we're going to talk about. Um, so we'll just move on to that then. Um, you came back up the road from London and the first job I believe you could get working as a mortuary technician at the Western mm -hmm. Infirmary. So as yeah. I sort of alluded to falling in your mother's footsteps in a way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I was given a choice at the Labour Exchange to work in a mortuary or um, to be a bus conductor on the buses. And, Both fascinating uh, <laughs> from a... From a but I was <laughs> observational point of view. <laughs> but I was um I, I wasn't that stupid because I can see the um the 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 the, the way bus conductors and conductresses were going <laughs> out a job. I didn't think they'd have much longer. So mm. so I, I went along for an interview, um had to hide my long hair um at that time and um and funnily enough getting back to the sectarianism when i went for the interview the first question which was very common in those days was uh, the interview was in what school did you go mm -hmm. to and you know just to find out your religion and then a relaxed atmosphere as soon as i told them uh and realized it was a protestant school and so i was okay oh, right. i was in wow. i was in with the bricks if you like and right. um because it was rife then as well yeah. in, in the west of scotland and so uh but i i i, I was absolutely horrified when uh i, I first saw a, a dead person uh I, 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 you know i really uh, thought mm. oh, I, I can't possibly keep this as a job but at the same time i, I worked in uh, in the pathology department um in the western and um they have they had at that time a very good pathology museum and so as well as occasionally working in the post-mortem room 
with the pathologist uh, 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 curate, ended up curating the pathology museum, which I, I found really fascinating because I was beginning to appreciate mm -hmm. uh, uh, human anatomy and, um, and the beauty of it, really. But more and more, um, because I, I was assisting the pathologists when they were carrying out post-mortems, um, they would then give me more gradually, very gradually, give me more responsibility um, in, in the post-mortem. And, uh, and so we form a few pathologists and myself, myself, it's quite common in our job to bond quite closely mm -hmm. with the pathologists because you rely on them, they rely on you. And, um, uh, and I found that really great, but I was more than that. I was just fascinated, um, in how pathologists would meticulously, uh, try to find and establish causes of death in mm -hmm. people who had died. Yeah. There was something you said, I'll read it back to you, which, which made something click in my head because so, <clears throat> excuse me, I've got a few friends that are in the police. And we discussed the smell of death mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. And I said that I would see one dead body and that would be me. I'd, I'd be signed off for a year with stress. Mm -hmm. My mate said it smells like a, I don't mean that's a horrible way, but he said, imagine the smell of a bag of two pence coins. Does that make any sense <laughs> to you? I've never actually sniffed a bag of two pence coins. Do you know what I mean? Though that uh -huh. smell of change, like that metallic yeah, in your mouth. Yeah, I can see elements of that in it. Yeah, uh, there's no doubt that the smell uh, of of decomposing flesh is is extremely unpleasant. There's no oh, doubt God. about it. And uh, in the early days, um, mortuaries were really pretty grim places. I can imagine uh, being the, primitive. The, the, and when you compare it to nowadays, I mean, most mortuaries, well, nearly all mortuaries now because of health and safety are pristine stainless steel, uh, ventilated tables so that it pulls yeah. the smells and ah, all yeah, the yeah. rest of it away, which can be a disadvantage in some uh, autopsies, which I could tell you about. But, um, but yeah, in those days, the going into work in the morning, there was no escaping and mm -hmm. I would never admit to becoming used to it. You never yeah. got used to it. You just accepted that that was what you were going to be confronted with each day. Well, for, based on what, from what you said, I'll read out what you said. So a couple of things. So you said, I really became fascinated with the pathologists and trying to establish causes of death. Mm -hmm. And on another occasion, you said, the first time I dealt with human remains was a shock. It's an assault to your senses. It looks bad and it smells bad. But by establishing how someone died or was killed, you become so involved in the scientific process yeah. that you grow accustomed to the smell. And that made me realize that I'm going in as someone who doesn't have any further modus operandi or any further goal than seeing what, I would just see what's happened and that's it. But if you can separate the, 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 the thing that you're looking at and the goal that you're trying to get, you're trying to get to a point. So it's almost, it becomes work it just becomes mm -hmm. a sort of professional undertaking mm -hmm. again something that will come on to that i think maybe has served you and your ability to be able to carry out some horrendously traumatizing mm -hmm. tasks mm -hmm. um what what are you do you know what i mean do, like do, you, yeah. do that make sense there i think that um you do you always once you know what you're doing and especially if, if people are relying on you to um to 
to help them, and I'm talking about uh, the pathologist mainly, um, you do become, in, as you said, Sean, involved in a scientific process mm -hmm. where um, you, it, it is very dirty, it's very smelly, very messy at times. But what the, the way that, uh, the only way I can describe it is it's a bit like a, a storybook at the end of a post-mortem mm -hmm. where the pathologist will have dissected the organs and showing uh, an, a, a sequential story of how that person had died, but also revealing other pathology that might not have contributed to a death, but were important from the point of view of how, for example, there might have been some injury, an old injury to someone's head that caused brain damage etc that could reveal to families for example that um that that might have affected a person's personality mm -hmm. and so on uh, so when all of those uh, organs are, are laid out and the clinicians who requested the the post-mortem came down to see them by that time usually the smell would be virtually gone the body would be covered up. It was part of our job uh, to reconstruct the bodies as well, and 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 uh, uh, because it would be quite common for relatives to ask to see or to view their loved ones mm. after a post mortem, and our job was to try and ensure that there wasn't any sign that they could see that would cause them distress, mm -hmm. having had a a post mortem. So, um, so it, it was a lot cleaner, a lot more clinical, and uh, that once the story has been told. The clinicians can then go back to the relatives and explain to them really uh, wh what had happened. So you feel a, a small sense of satisfaction very often um, with that. And the other thing too is, uh, for me, was was um, rewarding, if that's the right word, was dealing with the bereaved. Mm. Um, when I started in that job, uh, mortuaries were hellish places. Uh, I've always said that when it comes to uh, budgets, for example, um, mortuaries are always at the end of the queue when it comes to money. Mm -hmm. We were part of the pathology department um, and that was run by a, a, a lab manager. And if there was any, they get funds annually uh, and they would sort out whatever they needed, very expensive machinery, and it was necessary, I guess, um, but there was very little left for, for mortuaries, and um, and I gradually uh, ended up managing the mortuary in the Western, and I went on to manage all of the NHS mortuaries in Glasgow, and um, and it was a job that I, that I didn't like because I thought I had an opportunity to change things, to try and explain to other managers and executives in the health service that mortuaries matter. They're, they're part of ongoing care as far as we were concerned of the, mm -hmm. the, the patients and, um, and that they needed injection of funds because there was nothing much worse than having to look at the expression of families when they came to view their loved one in a stinking dirty paint off stripping off the walls mm -hmm. place and so on um, and very often the mortuary staff would, would pay to get something in it that would make it a bit brighter and and, uh, and that would help but but uh, I then realised the, uh, the nature of management is not to spend money but to save it and so uh, I, I was completely dissatisfied mm. um, by continually being uh, having the answer no every time mm. uh, I asked for something so, so I went off on a tangent there 
No, that's all right. You want to recall or, or recite anything, you feel free. Um, over a long period of time, I mean, you obviously did that job and you're rising up through the upper echelons, if you will, to, uh, to become quite an authority. Um, was it at this time, and I, I will give some background information, but was it at this time that there was a, after a long period of time, sorry, there was a call for people to go out and work in Bosnia? Is that kind of how, what happened, basically? Well, um, I, I explained that the mortuary staff are, we could call, be called a lot of things. You mentioned um, anatomical pathology technologists, mm -hmm. which must be the worst title of a job anywhere because right. no one knows what it means. And, I and, would take a stab and I'd be like, I'll be back in a minute, mate. <laughs> Stand the other side of the bar. <clears throat> I was a bit depressed when I heard that they had decided to call us that, you know, um, because be but before that we were called slab men, mortuary mm. technicians, pathology technicians, and um, and that grew to something else, into, or morphed into something else called forensic technicians. But um, to get back to your question, um, I had a very good relationship with the Glasgow University Forensic Medicine Department. And indeed, and although most of the autopsies that, that I was involved with were people or deaths of people who died of natural causes, and, um, uh, and that's where I guess I learned my trade, but we also carried out forensic cases. If someone had been assaulted and died in hospital, the post-mortem would often be carried out in, uh, in the in the hospital mortuary and so I had a, a very good relationship with the pathologist and the forensic medicine department and the, the head of that department said to me one day uh, there's a, a charity called Physicians for Human Rights based in Boston um, I suggest recommend that you, you sign up for them and it might give you an extra in interest if you're called anywhere and uh, and so uh, not long after that, I uh, received a telephone call from Physicians for Human Rights, PHR, uh, asking me if I would be willing to go out to Rwanda. This was in 1995, when, as you know, there was a genocide took place there where mm -hmm. over a million Tutsis were executed by the Hutu tribesmen. And, uh, and there was an outcry, the United Nations wanted uh, answers to why, how these people had been killed. And so I was all packed and ready. My passport had been sent down to London to get a visa. Um, and I was reading up on the, the details of the genocide and how it happened. So it'd be sort of advance warning of what was facing us. Uh, but then out of the blue, they called me to say that, uh, would I mind instead going out to Bosnia because um, this was late 1995 going into 96. They had discovered through aerial photography, take, photographs taken by NATO planes, um, earth being disturbed uh, mm. around the area of Srebrenica. Srebrenica. Um, where they believed there had been mass killings mm. and would I... Uh, be willing to travel out there and it came as a bit of a shock because uh, at that time although the the bosnian the wars in bosnia were on the telly practically every night mm -hmm. it, it to me seemed the most complicated war i didn't know who was fighting who and why mm -hmm. 
Um, and after learning all that stuff about Rwanda, I was I was quite pleased that I knew about what happened in Rwanda, <laughs> yeah. but disappointed that I, I wouldn't be going to Africa at least at that time. So um, so uh, 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 I went out to Bosnia in the summer of 1995, uh, and that began a journey that lasted almost ten years, really. Mm -hmm. of, for so for listeners, what I'll do is I'll provide a bit of background information. I'll try not to be too verbose or too drawn out. Yeah. So basically, for your listening, the Srebrenica massacre, which also known as the Srebrenica genocide, is something that occurred in July nineteen ninety five. Um, there were more than well, actually eight thousand three hundred seventy two recorded deaths of um, Muslim men and boys who were killed in and around the town of Srebrenica. So carried out basically by Scorpion's paramilitary group is information that I have, mm -hmm. the Bosnian Serb army. Um, so the massacre is the worst episode of mass murder within Europe since World War II. Um, and it basically helped galvanise the West to press for a ceasefire uh, that ended three years of warfare in Bosnia's territory. It's something that left deep emotional scars on survivors and has created enduring obstacles to political reconciliation among Bosnia's ethnic groups because there is one hell of a divide. Um, there was a UN investigation, I think, um, and I think, did the UN not take responsibility for failing to protect these people because I'm pretty sure Srebrenica was, was deemed to be a safe area? Um, then, as far as I'm aware, around about 1992, the Bosnian Serb forces started targeting Srebrenica in a campaign to seize control of a very useful block of territory for their end. I mean, it's it's something that played a bigger part in in winning their their war. I think Kofi Annan uh, wrote in in a review years later uh, through error, misjudgment, and an inability to recognise the scope of the evil confronting us, and that's something I want to touch on: the evil that was involved. We failed to do our part to help save the people of Srebrenica from this Serb campaign of mass murder. So that's what took place, 8,372 deaths, I think. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and then the the Serbs, the Bosnian Serbs, have tried to just completely cover that up, mm -hmm. which is where you come in. Because so the NATO planes have identified that land has been disturbed in a way that they can, I assume, they're going, hmm, that looks like mass graves to me. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, well, um, gosh, it's. I could talk a lot about it, Sean. See, just uh, I just yeah. want to quickly interject. Sorry yeah. to interrupt. Okay. I also want to say <clears throat> I don't mean to be insensitive at any point yeah. or probing. Yeah. Um, yeah. If at any point you think no, nah, then just kind of say because I'm going to be curious and have sort of questions, but I, yeah. I really don't mean to prod no, no, at any no. point. No, you can ask anything uh, you want. Uh, Sean, uh, I think this story and many others need to be told, and mm. uh, and uh, I'm grateful to you for giving it a platform. So, um, but I think it's important to kind of put the situation at that time into context in relation to you mentioned the UN safe areas, etc. Yeah. Um, the term safe area uh, was a bit of a misnomer. Um, because that that the, the, when you when you declare a, a place of safety, the term haven used to be uh, the best way of describing it, mm -hmm. where it would be a sanctuary for people to go and not be harmed. 
there was many meetings about the word area, which actually means nothing. Doesn't mean safety for anyone at a different uh, connotation at all. The the UN sent out uh, three hundred Dutch peacekeeping forces. Mm-hmm. Their mandate wasn't to defend Muslims who were being attacked. They weren't permitted to fire their weapons at Serbs unless their individual lives became under mm-hmm. threat. And the mandate was to observe what was happening uh, there and in five other safe areas, including Sarajevo, the capital, um, and also to ensure that humanitarian aid would get through to the the, the, the population. Now, it's important to know that in Srebrenica, it was a mainly Muslim town of around, a population of around 7,000. When ethnic cleansing was first coined by a man called Arkan, a notorious warlord, um, people in Bosnia, especially on near the border of Serbia and the border of Croatia, because uh, Bosnia is completely surrounded uh, by these countries and uh, the ethnic cleansing began where people were thrown out their homes. The Serbs would then take over their homes, steal all their possessions, um, and make a lot of money out of them. Mm-hmm. And Arkan was w- w- one of those most notorious ones. But then the people had nowhere to go because there was a no-fly zone um, and, uh, uh, implemented there where people couldn't fly out of mm-hmm. Bosnia. The reason for that was to try and prevent the Serbs from aerial bombing of of, um, Bosnia, uh, but it also meant that people couldn't escape there uh, uh, to other parts of of Europe or the world. And and so people were just forced out of their homes and were on the road going round in circles trying to find somewhere of safety. And they had the impression that of the six safe areas that the UN had designated, that they would head for those places. And in Srebrenica, the population of 7,000 grew to over 37,000 people who had virtually nowhere to stay. And um, the Serbs were still bombing because those places were completely surrounded uh, um, Srebrenica, like Sarajevo and the other safe areas were surrounded by hills, perfect places for sieges to uh, take place. And so they were continually being sniped at and killed but through mortar shells, etc. And so as, as many of the population there tried to find sanctuary in basements or wherever, they endured um, uh, a, lot of, a lot of things, but including that was the fact that two winters took place and the winters in Bosnia are particularly cold. Mm. Um, and so people were sleeping, uh, trying to sleep in the streets. Many of them died of hypothermia and, and so on. And of course there was starvation as well. And it's an interesting part of this uh, persecution, if you like, that went on in these places. I mentioned that the the, the UN were responsible for ensuring that humanitarian aid got through to them. So convoys would come from uh, from Scotland, in fact, from Edinburgh Direct Aid, uh, and from other parts of the UK and in Europe. They were escorted by the UN through Bosnia uh, for protection, if you like. Mm-hmm. But the Serbs insisted that those convoys be stopped and searched because they believed that they might be trying to sneak weapons into those safe areas. But they charged a price for that, and the price for that was that they would take up to a third of the contents of each truck for themselves as payment. 
And so they would do that. That obviously decreased the amount of medication that was mm -hmm. desperately needed and food, uh, only for them to be stopped again by another patrol and the same thing would happen. So that by the time um, the trucks got to uh, Srebrenica, there was virtually nothing of much use left. They always let so much through because they didn't want to spoil or kill the goose that laid the golden egg. Mm. So, but it, the, virtually the UN were, were feeding the Serb army, basically, and that caused so much deprivation uh, and deaths in Srebrenica and the other safe areas. Um, so that that's really, I guess, the background to the Srebrenica situation that the yeah. Dutch soldiers and uh, uh, the 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 people blame the Dutch for allowing this massacre in Srebrenica to happen, and the weapons that those three hundred soldiers had were were no match for the tanks and the cannons mm -hmm. that the Serbs had, um, and also the sheer numbers. There were thousands of Serb soldiers uh, involved in this, and only a few hundred Dutch soldiers whose job it was not to shoot at Serbs. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the Serbs, in fact, when they started the attack, took many of those uh, Dutch soldiers prisoner, held them hostage and warned NATO that if they tried to stop the Serbs entering uh, Srebrenica on July the 6th, 1995, that they would kill those soldiers. And believe me, they would be serious. And, mm -hmm. and, and um, we saw footage on TV of uh, Dutch soldiers who had been stripped of their uniforms um, and tied to bridges and various other public places so that the plane, NATO planes could see that we've been held hostage. Oh, and, and, and those uniforms, actually, uh, if you want me to mention what happened to them, because um, what happened in Srebrenica was that uh, the, as Mladic, the, the leader of the, the commander of the Bosnian Serb army, decided to enter the town, they bombarded it um, with shells and the population had to run and just outside Srebrenica was the UN uh, Dutch base and uh, in a little village called Potichari um, and so the population all ran there thinking that the UN would save them mm -hmm. because that was what they believed um, only to be told that they couldn't do anything. In fact, the Serbs had demanded that they hand over all the men and boys of fighting age, and they they designated that boys from 12 to 70 um, were a risk to their army because they could be turned into soldiers. Mm -hmm. And so they they demanded that all the males from that age group be uh, be handed over to the Serbs, uh, and the Serb men um, about. 12, 13,000 of them bolted into the forest mm -hmm. um, to try and escape what they knew would be their deaths. And um, and the, Serb, the uh, Dutch UN uniforms come into play where at one point the Serbs wore the Dutch uniforms, went to the edge of the forest and with megaphones shouted on the men to come down. They would be safe. They would feed them. They would be okay. We are here to protect you. Um, and those 8,000 plus men that you talked about gave themselves up because the forest was a hellhole. They had deliberately laid mines. There was Serb patrols running uh, throughout them, killing people on site. They were basically hunting down the men mm. like animals. And, uh, and so those poor men gave themselves up and it was those who were found in the first of the many mass graves in Bosnia. 
it's actually unimaginable. It's mm. the type of thing that you hear from the Holocaust. Mm. These are the types of tales. And you look back and like see when I was a wee guy learning about this in school, about the World War Two mm. and sort of what went on. So but that was the nineties. So let's say late nineties, early two thousands. And because you're looking at grainy black and white footage, you're going, it may as well have been 500 years ago for how much connection they had to that point. But now looking back, you're like, hold on a minute, that was 50 years ago. So for today, that's like looking back to 1970. Uh While I wasn't around, I have got a sense of connection to the Mm -hmm. 70s. If you listen to music, watch films, TV shows for then. And it's not that long ago. Now, mm. we are talking about something that was, what, 25 years ago? Yeah, yeah, and 25 years ago it ended. Absolutely unimaginable. And, I mean, the information I had as well, that was basically the military forces were directed to create an unbearable situation of total insecurity with no hope of further survival or life for the people that were there, uh, putting embargoes on food and the supplies that we are talking about. Mm. And this is all purely because they want to declare what a Bosnian Serb Republic mm. Um, that was that was clean of the the Muslim um, interference, and I'm saying that in their words, not mine. Just for anybody who's uh, willfully ignorant enough to think that's what I was implying. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> very very interesting. This... How what I was going to say with how stories come around and join. Uh-huh. So somebody uh-huh. who's sat in your very seat mm-hmm. is Eamon Dean, who listeners will be aware of. If you're not, go and listen to that interview. Mm-hmm. Eamon was um, 16 when he left Saudi Arabia to travel to Bosnia to defend the the people who were under attack and persecution. Now, that interview took place and I wanted to understand why did Eamon join Al-Qaeda? How did he go down that route? And when we're talking about this and what is happening, then I think, because I said to Eamon at the time, if I was you, if I was in your shoes and I lived your experience, I very... 99.9% certain that I would have taken the exact same path and made the same decisions that you did. Um, Hearing that about the stuff in the forest, Mm -hmm. to me now, anybody who went to defend them is is a righteous hero. Does that make, do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, yeah. Like, I think you are the goody. You are the good guy. Um, (laughs) To to go and defend that, that like the people that that's happening to, that's just, it's horrific. We'll, We'll talk about you're right, and it's important we talk about the realities of this because uh-huh. we see there are parallels in today's society. The the early indicators or the behaviour, like history just keeps repeating itself, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. things that we see happening now, which um, I don't know, say having some divisive, divisive person on, on a podcast and saying, well, mm-hmm. no, nah, look, you, you're, you're allowed, he's allowed his views as well mm-hmm. to that. I mean... Mm-hmm. Excuse the language, but I'd say, fuck you. No, yeah, you're not. Yeah. I think it's it's important to uh, chuck in a, a, an important historical fact here about the whys and, and so on. In 1990, by 1995, the war had been going on for up to four years, um, was the Serbs had realised that it was having to come to an end and that they were believe it or not, on the losing side by this time because (coughs) world opinion uh, against the atrocities that were taking place there on a daily basis was growing against Milosevic, the president of Serbia. Um, And 
because the war was coming to an end, Srebrenica was strategically important to the Serb. And by July 1995, what they were doing in Srebrenica was basically a land grab. Before the war ended, they wanted to make sure that that area, Srebrenica and the surrounding area, was Serbian. Mm -hmm. And in fact, from that point of view, they won because Srebrenica, that was before this all happened, was a Muslim uh, town. Um, now I think there are three or four Muslims who are brave enough to live there. It's now a Serb-populated town. So they won, if you like, the spoils of war. So so mm -hmm. that's an important part. Um, and the other thing that I would like to, to, to say uh, uh, about the, the figure, 8,000-plus 8, men, was that very often what's forgotten is what happened to women, not just the women in Srebrenica, but all over Bosnia. Um, the Serbs created what you might describe as rape camps, where up to 50,000 women were captured by Serbs, taken and repeatedly, time and time again, raped. And this was used as a weapon of war. It wasn't just men having it off with a, 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 a woman because they could. It was a deliberate and systematic attempt to try, they said, to breed out the Muslim blood in them so that they would have little Serb children. And those women, many of them, were forced to go full term with their, their, their children. Um, and any, any woman would be devastated by this, but it was particularly shameful for, mm. um, in mu Muslim society for, for, for women to um, to admit that they were raped. And so the, now there's a generation of 20 mid people in their mid-20s who are were babies, basically. They were put into orf orphanages who grew up without parents. Mm -hmm. um, and the mental trauma uh, against those women was, was incredibly bad. I mean, the, we talk about rape camps, but those places, there's a, a, a place in the town of Visegrad where... They took over a Serbs took over a luxury hotel and used that as a rape camp where women were locked in rooms and Serb soldiers came daily um, and raped them. Uh, a great number of those women committed suicide by throwing themselves off of balconies and so on. Um, and the reason I'm saying this here now, Sean, is because I, I, I speak sometimes to school kids. And on the opposite end of scale to prisoners in, in, in prisons in Scotland, and um, I'm not allowed certain subjects. You know, I can't mm -hmm. show any graphic photographs to the kids because it upsets them, uh, and I'm not allowed to talk about rape uh, to prisoners, which I find unfortunate because uh, I think I should be able to. But anyway, yeah, I, I, I yeah, always follow, uh, you know, the, the rules that are there. But um, but it's, I think it's great to be able to just mention that fact. You might want to edit it out. I don't no, know, no, so. it's Oh, just I mean, it's a lot to take in, and I don't mean to. This isn't like f for you listening. It's not a gratuitous inclusion of of um, something that's graphic, or, or you might be of a sort of sensitive or nervous disposition, and you're not enjoying it, hearing it. I've certainly not enjoying discussing it. But as you've kind of you've said, it's um, it's we have to face up to the reality of it. It wasn't that long ago. It wasn't mm -hmm. that far away. Mm -hmm. 
I was in like Croatia and Bosnia, and that it's not far away at all. It's a it's a couple of hours in terms of in terms of if you were to speak to an American, they would say, "Oh, it's it's just over the road." I'm sure. I'm, I don't know why they would say in a Jamaican accent like that, <laughs> um, or Irish or whatever that was. Um, let, I, I've got a kind of question or two about um, your role. But you said that when you had to go, you basically were going to prove this, weren't you, to, to uncover this genocide. There was something you said that you were looking, you had to go and excavate mass graves for a start. Um, you were looking for victims who'd had their genitals mutilated mm-hmm. and others who'd been made to drink diesel fuel. Mm-hmm. That's just twisted, psychopathic evil. Mm-hmm. Well, those that, that, that quote would um, actually should be attributed to attributed not to necessarily what happened in Srebrenica but in the concentration camps where uh, you remember I said or maybe I didn't say that the men according to Miladic were just being taken away for questioning mm. well that was the sort of questioning they were put under um, uh, uh, and Miladic also said that the men would join the women uh, a few days after they, they, they left Srebrenica um, and there were mass graves that uncovered were uncovered where these sort of hellish atrocities had been taken, had taken place. And uh, any time I went, I returned to Bosnia, sometimes twice a year, and it might be not dealing with bodies from Srebrenica, it might be in uh, other uh, parts of Bosnia, including in the concentration camps. And we would always be given a briefing by an investigator as to what to look for, what to expect and what evidence if we could find it would be important for the, mm. the criminal criminal tribunal in the hague and um uh, 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 and so that's that was really what we were what we were um tasked with but uh, it's also important to say that with regarding um the exhumations and so on particularly in in srebrenica um that was such a massive job i mean eight thousand plus bodies excuse me and um uh, I was taken to the, the uh, almost in the first day to one of the graves simply by chance because the lead pathologist asked me if I'd like to go out and have a look at, at what was facing us and um, and I saw the first mass grave and uh, and it was it was hellish. There's no doubt about that. But it's important to say that the, the graves themselves were exhumed. Um, by well, the, the 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 forensic team that went out there was split into two. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were anthropologists who were carrying out the exhumations, and these were very experienced anthropologists. Many had, most had come from either the U.S. or, more importantly, I felt from South America because those guys, those men and women, had been for years involved in the exhumation of bodies uh, in places countries like uh, Guatemala and Argentina after the juntas back mm-hmm. in the, the early 60s. And um, and they had massive experience. We even had the guy who uh, exhumed and established the identity of Che Guevara with us. You wow. know, so they were vastly experienced professionals. And, uh, and because of my background, I was assigned really to the mortuary there, um, uh, 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 along with the pathologists and 
other anthropologists. So the team was split into two and it was the investigators and those archaeologists who did most of the exhumation. They would then send the bodies to us in a temporary mortuary close by um, and we would carry out the forensic examination of, of all of those bodies. And um, and that, that happened both in uh, for the bodies of Srebrenica, but then following year in 97, in the town of Visoko, we established a, a permanent mortuary there where we took in bodies from all over the country because you need to bear in mind that some of those bodies were um, in quite dangerous places in Serb territory. Mm-hmm. So uh, they, they had to be very careful because the, in 96, there was still a risk of harm coming to anyone who was working on this job. And, were you not told, don't go out the back because there's Serbian snipers take, that will take pot shots yeah, at you? Yeah, yeah. So you're quite uh, literally in the midst of a war zone. There's no... Well, th- technically the war... After the Dayton Accord in December 95 had finished, but it hadn't. I mean, there was Aye. all kinds of, um, of fighting going on in the country. And in particular, we weren't made welcome at first, not by the Bosnian people. They were highly suspicious of us because mm-hmm. they were disgusted by the way that the West had ignored them for all these years. But we weren't particularly made welcome by the UN soldiers either. It was um, Americans that were in the, the, the territory that we stayed in and um, and they didn't want us there because they felt we were churning up more aggression from mm. Serbs and in fact uh, there was a couple of times where we had to abandon the mortuary um, uh, because of we were told the Serbs were going to attack mm-hmm. it and the mortuary itself was a bombed out clothing factory and um and my first day there i i, I walked uh at lunchtime i just took a stroll around the other side of it and it's a quite a funny wee story we had uh four or five young bosnians who we had hired to wash the clothing that we took from the the dead using the power washer etc and I was introduced to them and I've mentioned a couple of times that I was quite well built in those days and mm. uh, and to them the same situation that I had in Yorkshire in the commune it was a kind of challenge who's this guy with the muscles etc and there was one guy in particular there who was a real weightlifter I could tell um and him and I got on quite well, but that lunchtime when I went round the back of the mortuary, um, I heard this guy shouting at me, um, Minas, Minas, and I looked round and said, what's he saying? And then I realised he was saying, mines. And I thought, oh, Jesus Christ, what have I got myself yeah. <laughs> So, and he was making a gesture to backtrack. And so when I backtracked thinking, I'm going to die, um, and uh, fell into his arms. They all burst out laughing. They were taking the piss. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we shook hands. Right, lads, probably not a joke to be having. It's very much a real threat. I know. Raging. But what, what, the police officer that I was working with, um, uh, he was laughing as well. But then he added a little, um, a little caveat to it. He says, and by the way, Robert, don't go round the bike because you're facing Serb hills and there could be snipers mm. there. And uh, I thought, oh God, what am I got myself into? So Talk about the downsides of the job. Yeah. Um, not that I want to get away from the harsh realities of it, but I feel we have discussed it enough 
those details enough to get the point across. I try my best to find positivity in everything. Um, and this quote from you, well, no, 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 it's not a quote, it's a, a numerical statistic kind of points to the reason why you felt so passionately about working in the mortuary here, that you can give comfort to the bereaved. Mm-hmm. And out of the 8,300 odd people, I don't mean that to be disrespectful, as if 8,300 odd, 8,372. Mm-hmm. The International Commission on Missing Persons were able to identify over 6,800 of those people. Now, while that's not 100%, mm-hmm. it's far more than than would have been done. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's 100% more than would have been done if you guys hadn't mm-hmm. gone in, um, which is a real positive. One question I have, hearing that, which is basically, it's just Adolf Hitler-level evil that, that took place. I, I feel that if that took place in Spain or Germany or France, it would never have gotten that far, that the perpetrators of those crimes would have been hung by their necks or their ankles Mussolini style mm-hmm. um, and and rightly so I don't want to subscribe to the notion of or perpetuate the sort of notion of <sighs> Muslims are just considered second class mm-hmm. however that is the only that's the only conclusion I can make that UN went uh, and again I'll just be I'll be a bit crass here that UN went so fuck that, mm-hmm. that, that's how I see it that they've went so fuck it's Muslims don't care mm-hmm. uh, we'll go in I mean we'll put some you may as well have given the, the Dutch soldiers toy guns mm-hmm. what's the point why even give them the gun then what's it for mm-hmm. if you're not, allow, not allowed to use it it's like sending a firefighter right there's a hose but don't you be spraying any water do you need to just let them argue amongst themselves and it makes me really angry then we saw the trials took place at the Hague what in 2016 2017 mm-hmm. when that clown took the poisoned himself yes other yes. people mm-hmm. no justice really took place did it you have a you have, you have a trial 20 years later you should have had the trial 20 days later yeah yep. because it's all there to be seen i've just kind of i'm spewing anger i'll just i'll let you take over from here I, I, you make a, a very good point sean about the the length of time that all this has taken and it, it's worth really mentioning um a partial reason why it's taken so long. Uh, uh, one of them is that in the early days, had Mladic and uh, Karadic, the political leader, and Milosevic been arrested, um, that would have re- resurrected the fighting again because mm-hmm. they, are, they are heroes in the eyes of, of some people. Um, and so they were kept, I mean, I could bore you with another story about a U2 concert that I went to in, in Sarajevo where Mladic and Karadic were apparently in the audience and, uh, and surrounded by NATO troops who did nothing to, to, to stop them. Um, but anyway, uh, what, what's, what's more important, I guess, is uh, the duration of the exhumation is taking so long and still to this day going on. Mm. Um, the reason for that is that there, there, there were at the time, back in the, 90, the mid-90s, established many sites for mass graves, um, not just in Srebrenica, but in different parts of Bosnia. Mm-hmm. And in 96, we were working on full human remains, full bodies, basically. 
But then we started to get hear um, rumours that that they were entering. The investigators were finding graves that were empty, that, that that there had been bodies in them. There might still have been two or three bodies belonging to Bosnian soldiers, perhaps, um, and the bodies had gone and um, uh, that was a puzzle uh, until they realised that the Serbs had, whilst we were working on the bodies from Srebrenica, mm -hmm. had re-entered those graves in the winter when the, they had shut down, um, taken out all of the, the bodies in the mass graves and then using mechanical diggers, tore them apart uh, limb from limb and oh. then Took, took those body parts and um, and we dealt with over 17,000 different body parts, many of which had been placed in separate mass graves. Mm -hmm. um, and it was really uh, tragic for the families to be told that we found your dad, but half of him is missing. And uh, and so the burials and so on that go on every year out in Potichari, um are, 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 are only carried out when they've got as much of a human being as possible because the last thing they would want to do would be to go back to a family after they've been handed over to them, their loved ones been handed over mm -hmm. and say, um, you were found, you know, an arm belonging to your your, your, your son or your dad. So that that's one the, another reason why it's taken so long. And on, a, I suppose, a political question about the fact that these people were of the Muslim faith and mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, and it's my belief and I'm only basing this on what I have read or seen for myself was that Milosevic, uh, the president of Serbia, wasn't a particularly racist person as far as I know, but he knew that by playing the racist card, he could stir up the passions of historical battles that mm -hmm. had taken place between uh, Serbs who are Orthodox Christian, Croats who are Catholic, and um, and the Bosnian Muslims, um, quoting uh, you know battles that happened centuries ago, and that reminded me of <laughs> it sounds of, like Glasgow <laughs> exactly, exactly <laughs> Battle of the Boyne, and uh, and that's the way that's often used um, yeah. uh, to to. Uh, to categorise people as animals, as non-human and so on, to churn up this sense of hatred towards mm. Muslims. But whether or not the West had, um, I don't think, if I'm honest, the West had uh, had any religious or racist thoughts about whether or not they should help. I'm sure some of them were. I remember uh, in this country a Tory MP uh, saying, oh, don't know why we're helping these people. They're always killing one another, you know. Yeah, and kill surprise. Imagine my shock that Tories coming away with that. Aye, and and what what I think must the message that must get uh, be told is that the the wars in Bosnia or the, in the Balkans were described as civil wars, which is very offensive to many yeah. Bosnians. It was a war of aggression to get rid of a population that just so happened to be Muslim and they were easy targets because they couldn't defend themselves because they yeah. had no weapons, etc. as I've described yeah, before. I, I, would, I would say based on what we know and what we've discussed, to suggest that it was a civil war would be akin to suggesting that the the Jewish population and the Germans just had a bit of an issue and they had to sort it out amongst yeah. themselves. And yeah. the yeah. Jews were also the equal aggressors. It's just completely absurd. Yeah. Um, you, I believe that you were, while there, were living with 
some of the, basically with Muslim families or yeah. the, the, like yeah. the women, you're obviously going to be coming up the road. I don't, I don't mean to say for your work, but you're coming up the road and you're then after having dealt with the stress that comes with that, the, the understandable questioning of humanity that you must have went through. You've got them asking you and you're living amidst their grief. That is going to have a hell of an impact on you. Mm -hmm. So I would like to move on to coming up the road and I'm very much paraphrasing, but having bad dreams, feeling mm -hmm. very stressed. How, what mm -hmm. was that manifestation like and, and how did that impact you? That's quite interesting. Um, I had, by the time I retired in 2009, I had 40 years of experience in working with the dead and, um, and it, it, they didn't, it didn't bother me very much. I don't think, I don't remember having any problems with it, but almost in the, the day that I retired, my wife, um, Kathy was, uh, waking me up at night saying that I was screaming out and, you know, lying in pools of sweat and so on. So I, 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 at the time I, I used to think that, um, well, that's normal. I mean, most people have bad dreams and, um, it just so happens that I had seen some pretty graphic, uh, examples of, mm. of what can happen in war and in torture and so on. And, um, and, and you know, it wasn't just from Srebrenica. In 99, I went out to Kosovo and it was a much more intimate experience in having to exhume the bodies of, say, a family, um, uh, women, children and the men who had been treated terribly before they were they were killed and mm -hmm. and so you had a, a rounded experience and it was those sort of images that would uh, that i would dream about at, at night and um to cut a long story short my, my wife knew i was always interested in art and bought me an easel um and so i started painting what an, an easel for for those um or for those stupid listeners who don't know what that is including me i actually don't know what it is <laughs> right <laughs> it's just the stand that you put the canvas right, okay. on you know and, and, i was like uh, that i must be reading that wrong right okay so okay so that's what it is right uh, and, and so um I, I was only pretending to be stupid i know you were oh, oh i can tell that uh, i've seen all <laughs> so, the artwork around here <laughs> I, I knew you knew right, anyway yeah um but but strangely enough uh, um i started drawing and painting images that I dreamt about or tried to anyway mm -hmm. and um, uh, and so I, I started taking it up seriously and I found that by painting um, some of the scenes some of the scenes that um, that I dreamt about or had nightmares about uh, were very helpful to me and um, I started off uh, painting for example a man wearing a blindfold because we would find bodies uh, you know, in the mass graves uh, from Srebrenica, mm -hmm. whose who were blindfolded, had their hands tied behind their back um, with wire, which which was so tight, Sean. I, I mean, you, you even now cringe when I see how tight this wire was, like thin coat hanger wire, mm -hmm. you know, that they had twisted with, with pliers and cut through the skin into the bone. And, uh, and I, I, I often dreamt about... Um, about something like that. You know, it's just one example. Uh, but I found it, uh, I, I painted 12 paintings of, of these scenes in uh, a local art gallery um, called Iota in Partick. Uh, they, my wife told them about it and uh, and they, uh, they, they curated uh, an exhibition that ended up in the Scottish Parliament, which mm. uh, I was very 
pleased about because it gave me an opportunity to talk to politicians about about what happened in Bosnia and mm. uh, and I must say they were uh, they were supportive of that. So. Yeah, Alex Salman, then first minister, said that mm. your ability to translate your experiences into thought provoking and striking works of art is simply mm. tremendous. That's a direct quote. That's yeah. well, he may be a divisive figure. He's a his opinion as <laughs> valid as anybody's. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. He so the. Witness through your paintings because I've looked at them now. To me, artwork there are certain art is art to me in, in the sense of I'm like I'm a well, I don't know what you call it, a luddite. That's more for technology in it. I'm I don't know what I'm talking about basically when it comes to art, but I can. Yeah. So there are certain things that make you stop and go wow. And I know the one you took with the blindfolds are not like a teardrop of blood. Yeah. Um. Three of your paintings witness subjugation in Srebrenica women. They, are they currently on show at the St Mungo Museum of yeah, Religious Life yeah. and Art? Yeah. People would like to go and see them. Yeah, I, I formed a, a wonderful relationship with, with St Mungo's in particular and mm. Kelvin Grove uh, museums and they acquired three, the three paintings that you mentioned and, um, and I often go there uh, and give talks to anybody that's mm. willing to listen on the background to those paintings. In fact, yesterday, uh, as part of their Holocaust Memorial Day uh, events, uh, for the first time they organised a, a, a spontaneous talk that I gave to a school in Glasgow and at the same time a school in Nuremberg where the Holocaust uh, trials were, were held, as you know, and mm. um, and that was wonderful because it meant that uh, 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 instead of going out to these places, which sometimes can be difficult, certainly under COVID, mm -hmm. uh, it's opened up a, a, a new way of passing on the message because uh, I think what's important to say, uh, Sean, if you don't mind, is my association with the charity Remembering Srebrenica. Yeah. Uh, because... Um, for many, many years, not just myself, but uh, many people who do this sort of work for a couple of reasons don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. You know, that that um, and that's an issue. And this is what I learned by doing those paintings that um, I found that by expressing myself, it helped me. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I wondered about colleagues who would have seen the same things as, as, as I did. And um, so... Uh, uh, but we didn't say anything. We often, for example, when I worked uh, for the Foreign Office, I had to sign the Official Secrets Act and wasn't allowed to talk to anybody about anything that mm -hmm. I did in, in Kosovo. Um, and uh, there are confidentiality issues that, because of trials coming up and so on, you had to mm -hmm. be really careful about not, not talking to the press. However, uh, I learned about this charity called Remembering Srebrenica um, and I had a long conversation with them and uh, uh, they're a charity in the UK that try uh, to tell people, to teach people, educate people mm. about what happened out there um, uh, uh, because it's so important to learn the lessons from, uh, fr from these horrors. And uh, so they send out, they, they form uh, delegations to go out there of uh, often teachers or politicians to go out to Srebrenica, meet the the, the women who are the widows uh, mm. uh, of the victims and in particular visit the grave and 
Potichari, the most beautiful cemetery there where many of the, the people are buried uh, uh, who we dealt with. And, um, uh, uh, and in 2020, I took uh, a group of forensic experts back to Bosnia for the first time, some of them for many, many years. And it was really... Um, they 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 realised themselves. Many of them, and these are hard bitten cops, mm -hmm. doctors, and others. Uh, uh, for the first time, the enormity of the work that they had done, and uh, they, they got quite emotional when they saw the beautiful cemetery because all they would remember was those hellish mm -hmm. bodies being, you know, decomposed bodies being taken out of the ground. Quite literally unimaginable. Um, mm -hmm. Like you as a person. You've got a really kind energy, if that makes sense. You're just a really nice guy. How do you, how do you maintain that? How do you not become completely disillusioned with humanity? How do you not think evil far supersedes goodness? Because if you were to meet you in the street or in the cafe, or in a cafe or in a pub, you'd be like, oh, "Nice guy, he must have had a, quite an easy life. He just seems quite happy with stuff." Mm -hmm. How how do you? Because Help me to learn for you because if I have sometimes one minor inconvenience, I'm like, fuck this. Mm -hmm. The world is against me. Mm -hmm. um, and I suppose I could learn a lot from you. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I don't I don't think I can teach you anything really, Sean, other than to say that, that the vast majority of people that I know that do this or did this sort of mm -hmm. work, and some still do it, um, go on and do it and never as I say, never talk about it because they don't think it's that special. And I, th I met some of the most oh. extraordinary people that I learned a lot from um, uh, and we were still friends after all these years. And um, uh, and so the work, uh, although, um, you know, it's horrible and so on, I, I guess what happens is that you form little families when you're in these deployments and, mm -hmm. uh, and they become the people there become your family. And, yeah. uh, so you get support from them. Um, uh, and so as far as looking back on uh, on humanity, I'm an old man now, uh, I still see hope in, in everything. You know, the fact that um, two, two, two things give me personal satisfaction to some extent. One is uh, being back out to Bosnia, um, uh, in peacetime a few times, taking, going out there with delegations and so on, and seeing the cemetery in, in Potichari and meeting again with the mothers uh, and um, who have gone through so much, who, from them, what I take is the fact that they don't want uh, retribution. They want just justice. Mm -hmm. And they were asked, I remember being out there, and they were asked a question, uh, do you forgive them? And they said, well, never forgive them because they don't seek forgiveness. They, mm -hmm. they, they continue uh, either to deny what happened or try to justify it. Um, so you, you learn from, you know, really tall people, often women um, who have, uh, wh whose lives were completely shattered. And, um, and also the other side of this is that um, the main perpetrators, the International Criminal Tribunal, who've been criticised a lot, but I think they did one great thing, if, if nothing else, and that was seek out the main perpetrators. Yeah. 
a president of a country, in mm -hmm. fact, two presidents, Karadzic as well, um, uh, and the leader of the armies, not just Mladic, but some others, they were hunted down and arrested and have been punished. Milosevic, unfortunately, died whilst his trial was going mm -hmm. on and that denied justice. But as far as many others are concerned, they have been punished, spend the rest of their lives in jail. Um, and for us as people who went out and did that work, mm -hmm. there is satisfaction in saying we got them and they're in the right place for the 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 the, the survivors and and there are survivors who crawled out of those mass graves alive and you know they tell their stories which mm. are awful um, and the mothers and so on they they still suffer because they 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 they, they can run into perpetrators in their villages and towns God. who are have never been charged uh, particularly rapists um and some who have been charged and spent five years in jail or 10 years in jail if you like who are now back in positions of power and just one final fact about srebrenica um I told you about the cemetery there mm -hmm. uh, a vast cemetery over six eight six thousand eight hundred bodies in it um the mayor of that town srebrenica which is now a serb town it's called republika serbska um he the mayor of the town is a serb and he's also a denier he constantly talks to the media about how it never happened and when he was asked but you can see the bodies you can see the cemetery from your office window and his explanation for that, Sean, I uh, 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 smiled wryly when I heard it, was he said, oh, no, no, no. Um, many of these bodies came from uh, Southeast Asia, Thailand, etc., after the tsunami that couldn't be identified. So they were sold and put into those graves and they just pretend that they were Muslims from Srebrenica. Right. And I found that, that quite funny in a way because mm. you worked uh, in that I well, worked in you? Thailand and, uh, and I, I was... Uh, partly responsible, along with others, to repatriate bodies uh, uh, to other countries, and I don't remember sending any to Bosnia. Yeah, that perhaps another, um, another, another interview, another episode, if you <laughs> fancy it, because I do know you, you you were helping out in the 2004 Southeast Asia tsunami, but also the identification or assisting in the identification of British and Australian soldiers killed in France in World yeah. War One. So yeah. that's yeah. hours more conversation oh, yeah. for us, definitely. Um, I mean, with the mayor of Srebrenica, I know I should keep it maybe a bit higher brow, um, come up with something more articulate to say, but I would just probably conclude that by saying absolutely fuck him. Uh, one day he'll need to face up to mm -hmm. a power far higher than him. We'll see if he's still we'll see if he's still as bold at that point if mm -hmm. if such a, a higher justice exists. Mm -hmm. But it's a common um, it's it's just a it's a common feature through all genocides yeah. after them. People will deny them. People still deny the Holocaust took place. Um, <laughs> Not sure it's uh, insane, uh, uh -huh, I know. And uh, and th what I would say is that to them, my answer to them would be that I worked um, over those years with experts from 32 countries who established, uh, who discovered and, uh, and presented evidence to the courts that these people were had been executed. And I'll say to any denier, well, they can't all be wrong. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm aware, actually, that fairly recently, it very, very narrowly, very narrowly passed in the Serbian parliament a motion to formally apologise 
And I think it was an absolute mouse's apology for what happened. Mm -hmm. So there is actually official recognition from the Serbian authorities that it did take place. Yeah. Not like, I mean, that's like childish stuff. Like I remember doing, like even as a wee guy, smashing a glass uh, by accident and then trying to dispose of the evidence. And then my mum coming in and saying, there's one less glass and there's crystallised broken glass on the floor. Did you break something? Because you're the only person here. No, I never. But there is overwhelming evidence that there is. And I'm like, well, yeah, but you don't have actual footage, so you can't really prove it. Yeah, um, yeah. By the way, I want to apologise for coughing, um, if that's annoying anybody. I'm trying my best to to do it away from the mic. I know it can be jarring when, when that happens. Um, this has been... I don't want to say enjoyable discussing genocide, yeah. but it has been insightful and it has been enjoyable and I've really enjoyed you being so generous with your recollection, your insight, your opinion, um, your sort of memories and everything. Uh, and I hope people listening have enjoyed it as well. I'm, I'm absolutely certain that they will have. Um, it is important to shed a light on these things. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also important to, I think, have conversations which hold a mirror up to the current day. Like I was in, um, I went to the po Topography of Terror in Berlin. Do you know what that is? No. no. Basically, it was the former site of the Nazi HQ oh, um, right. in the 30s and 40s. <clears throat> and it was where they would, basically their entire government operated from um, to a large extent. So while they would have been dealing with mass genocide and stuff, it was also where they dealt with refuse collection and, and economic spending on like their healthcare system or whatever. Um, and it was a large part of it was preserved when obviously the Soviets descended on on Berlin and sort of wrecked the gaff. Um, they kept it, but there is a stretch of the Berlin Wall that also goes alongside it. And outside it, it's this this ex exhibit, I suppose, where it is like a um, phot photographical, would you say? Is that a word? Photographical? Yeah, I think uh, so. <laughs> photographical exhibit that is accompanied with captions and explanations of what you're looking at. And it's the Nazi rise to power. Oh, yeah. Uh, and how they how they get in? No, no. Well, listen, like we're allowed there, say as well. Nope, sorry, dickhead. No, you're not. Like <laughs> we don't tolerate you know the whole paradox of tolerance. Um, and it, it goes through and it gets to the very end, and you go, oh wow, you see how it's just these incremental mm. erosions of standards, I suppose, societal standards. Mm -hmm. You do not give platforms to certain people, or you call certain things out. Um, you do not have to listen to everybody's opinion. Does your opinion or does your um, input sort of revolve around the erosion of the rights and, and, and dignities of other human beings? Well, you do not get to come on. You get milkshake to the face. That's what you're getting. Shut up, piss <laughs> off, go away. Um, and I just, I, I, I suppose I'm going off on a bit of a tangent now, but it's just important to, to look at things and to go, wait a minute, kind of seeing the early glimpses of that happening now nip it right in the bud mm -hmm. hopefully that's what's happening yeah yep. um i wouldn't hold out too much hope but for everybody hopefully there's there's a goodie just like you um if people want to get in touch with you or to find out more mm -hmm. maybe about your artwork or about your life story where was the where's the best place to direct them to whether it's an email or a website or social media presence um <clears throat> well my email address is robbed robt mcneil at aol.com and i have a website called robertmcneil.org.uk and in that i describe most of what i was involved with over mm -hmm. over those years 
Uh, as always, the links to that you will find in the episode notes so that you can easily get them. But you've also just had them right out there. Um, yes, so I suppose all that's left to say now is thanks so much for, for coming in. Um, it's been my pleasure, Sean. And I'm, uh, as I said, I'm grateful to you for being able to help uh, tell the story of what happened in uh, in a war that's that's often forgotten in a mm-hmm. genocide, the first in Europe, as you say, since the Holocaust. Yeah, no, all all thanks go to you, um, and all all credit has to go to you for for coming on. Just glad to be able to give that small platform. Um, let's sit down and talk about the experience, and maybe shortly in the future, if you don't, maybe after New Year, yeah. about the World War One and the Southeast Asia tsunami. Yep, no problem. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and to you listening, thanks again if you've made it this far. Um, much appreciated. <laughs> I suppose we'll be we'll be back soon with another episode of Leathered. Cheers. Leathered was written, recorded, and produced by Sean McDonald in association with The Big Light. Music and post production by Brian McAlpine. And for more information, go to thebiglight.com. If you like this podcast, please check out all our other series, including Talk Media. You could start a fight in an empty house. Talking Derry Girls, Brave Your Day, The Tartan Noir Show, Double Scotch, Great Scott, Trust Me I'm a Leader, Unearthed, A Sonic Hug, and Old School. All on the Big Light, Scotland's podcast network. From the Big Light Studio.